The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, This is Eileen Fiore and I am sitting in for Mary Woods today for One Hour at a Time. Thank you all for joining us. Today, um, I have a very accomplished individual um, who's going to share a number of things with us. Um, He's got extensive experience as the co-founder and clinical director of Evoke Therapy Programs and has developed um, some additional programs, Second Nature Therapeutic Wilderness Programs, um, and also has been affiliated with the state of Utah on as uh, part of the Child and Family Services Department and involved in the National Association of Therapeutic Schools and Programs. So um, our gentleman is Dr. Brad Reedy, and I welcome you to the show. Brad, you come with a great deal of experience and um, with a fairly new publication called The Journey of the Heroic Parent. Um, but first, I'm wondering if you could share with our listeners um, a little bit about Evoke Therapy programs. Sure, sure. Thanks for having me, too. I'm very glad to be here. Evoke Therapy programs is a, an evolution. We, we started a program called Second Nature Wilderness Therapy Programs years ago, and Evoke Therapy programs is uh, what was formerly known as Second Nature Entrada and Second Nature Cascades. It's a wilderness-based therapy program for young adults and adolescents. We've expanded that to add families to that component and adventure therapy to that also. But it's primitive living, nomadic living, outdoor. Kind of think of it like camping therapy as the foundation, kind of the skeleton of the program. It's fantastic for getting people into recovery, for helping them really work the steps, for improving mindfulness, treating anxiety, depression, other issues, and it really brings the family in well. And, and, and then you overlay all of that with traditional therapy, 12-step approach, traditional psychotherapies, and so it's really one of the most powerful, what I like to call delivery method, methods of therapy I've ever seen in my life. Wonderful. Is it, tell me what is the magic of this, being out in nature and the entire experience? Is there a sensual component along with intellectual? How does that all come about? You know, I, I think we're, we're probably more aware today than we were when we started our first program in 1998 of uh, the, the need to get unplugged, right, the need to detox digitally in our lives. I think we're really inundated these days, even more so than we were back there. But getting outside, getting quiet, um, practicing solitude and quietness of the mind, developing mindfulness, it's a great setting for that. What I like about wilderness therapy is the natural lessons that it passes on to us, the natural lessons it passes on to us, for example, of what we're in control of and, and what we're not. Some, some days, some weeks, it rains 
day after day after day, or it snows, or there's bugs in the summer or springtime. And so you really do have to focus on what you can control and what you can control. And so it's fantastic at getting people to make that distinction in their life. And, and then the other thing that I'll say is a lot of the lessons that we teach in schools, education, sometimes even therapy, even residential therapies, feel contrived to participants, meaning that it sounds like it's theoretical. In the wilderness, it, it, it teaches it to you because it's the experience of living in small groups and, and learning to practice you know, getting, getting along with each other, problem solving, dealing with the hike, dealing with building fire. In primitive cultures, the lessons and values are passed on in the daily living, whereas in Western cultures sometimes we're a little bit removed from the lessons of life. A farmer, it's easy to teach a farmer what you reap is what you sow, but it's hard to teach somebody, for example, living in an urban area if their father and mother are doctors and lawyers, it's hard to teach them that principle. Wilderness therapy does those things. You, you meet it on the ground and it's incredibly powerful. Like I said, method of passing on values, ideas, lessons, principles, because it's, it's inherent in the struggle to survive. So um, it sounds fascinating, but it also sounds like it's pretty hard work um, <laughs> for not only the participants, but I would imagine for your staff. Um, yeah. There a level of physical readiness, I would imagine, in addition to mental readiness? Right, right. Yeah, the staff are, I always say this, it says this in my book, the first thing I noticed about wilderness therapy was the amazing staff. That was the very first thing I noticed. These are people, they live out there for eight days in a row without a break. I mean, they take a break during the day for an hour here or there, but they don't come out of the field, and it's really remote and primitive. So it does take a kind of hardiness, but almost all of them, and this is almost always true, come with a love and affinity for, for nature and outdoors and what it brings. And so they, they have that passion. Many of them also have experience in, in mental health prior to coming to us. What they don't have in both of those areas, we train them. They go through uh, a three-week uh, training process before they're in the field, before they're assigned to be working with any students and supervising any students. So it's a pretty rigorous training process. They learn CPR. They learn uh, de-escalation techniques. They learn... They eventually learn to, to be a wolfer train, which is wilderness first responder, which is the equivalent of a, like a wilderness EMT level. So uh-huh. they're incredible, passionate people, and, and they bring a lot of love to it. And then we have a really, really um, pretty robust training program for them, too. That's great. Now, um, in utilizing these therapies in the outdoor setting, um, I'm just purely out of curiosity because, of course, we rely so much on medications. I'm wondering how you balance that um, when you're out in the wilderness. Is there a role there, or do you screen particularly for um, any... um, particular group of people that it tends to work with. Um, you, you mentioned adolescents. In addition right. to that, who fits right. best? You know, the, the rule, I'll start with the rule outs. If somebody's psychotic, if they're acute danger to themselves or others, that's not a safe place for them to be. I think probably mm-hmm. one of the things that's most misunderstood about wilderness therapy is it, it's a sophisticated therapeutic program. So we have a psychiatrist and she goes out to the field to meet with the clients who, who need that level of supervision. The clients that come in on medication, um, our medical director approves them, of course, for wilderness activity, but they maintain yeah. that if they need to be changed, then they can meet with our psychiatrist um, later on in the program. So we, we can deal with a, a whole lot of people. And the coolest thing about it is because they're small groups, 
each group is between six and ten clients. If the clients are the young adults or, or if they're adolescents, we call them students. So six to ten participants with four staff, and they have different niches. So there's some groups, that, for example, that are all recovery. There's some groups that are Asperger's spectrum disorder. There's some groups that are mood disorders and, and general issues. And so it really is, if you could just imagine a really sophisticated, comprehensive treatment program with an incredible family component and this spiritual wilderness component, and, and then you can talk about all the various niches. It works with a, a lot of different groups, and we keep them separate. Group one, for example, never sees group two. So in that way, you can really tailor the treatment plan to fit the group. Oh, I see. I see. Um, and you'll have multiple groups out at different sites at the same time then. Yeah, we have two sites. We have one in Bend, Oregon, and we have several groups there. And then we have one in southern Utah, Santa Clara, Utah, and several groups there. Both sites have young adults and adolescent groups. And, of course, the adolescents and young adults, don't. They, the groups don't mingle with each other. So mm-hmm. and they're in separate locations and in their different, like I said, different niches based on the therapist's training and approach, then, then that develops the, the kind of culture of the group and who, who ends up in that group. Wonderful. And how do you engage families in this process? Well, I'll try not to be boring with this because it's a long list of things. First of all, there's a special kind of, of, of pull that wilderness has for these families. Right? It's a vulnerable placement to send your child out. It's, it's kind of not well known to a lot of people, so they're pulled into it. They have a parent coordinator along with their child's therapist. They have a mentor, a former parent. Parents volunteer to mentor new parents. I broadcast two webinars per week live. We have 100 in the archive library that they can look at. They have a parent portal with various assignments that come up. I go around the country and do parent support groups. We have a parent workshop they come out to midway. They come out for a mid-program visit and end-of-program visit. And then I do, we've developed recently these um, family and, and individual intensives that I do in Park City, Utah, where people come in for four days where I do a lot of psychodrama and experiential therapy to go deeper into their individual work if they want to add that onto their program. So, um, yeah, we have a lot. There's a lot of involvement. I think probably we, we want them to feel supported, and I think there's even the risk sometimes of it being overwhelming when I list it like that, but yeah. we find them to be more motivated, just, just like the clients and students. We, I find parents to be more motivated in this work than I've seen them in other settings before. They, they develop a passion for it. They, they respond, they interact with their ch- children mostly through letter writing, which is a really cool way of doing family therapy. And then they, later on in the program, will do satellite phone call sessions, family therapy sessions that the therapist uh, participates and facilitates with the family. So there's just this wonderful motivation both for the client and the parents to really get into it. It's a short-term primary care, often uh, the, the first step in, in, a, in a long process um, for families, but they become very, very uh, passionate, immersed in it. And, and uh, yeah, it's something that they'll talk about. Most of our families will say it changed my entire life, all of my relationships, not just my relationship with my child. I can well imagine. It sounds very transforming. And your yeah. locations are um, really, uh, I guess in my own opinion, very well chosen. They're um, <laughs> absolutely beautiful landscapes um, where these folks are immersed. Was that intentional? You know, you have to find, to do a real wilderness like we do, you have to find some wide open space. And so the West has a lot of that. Southern Utah, for those of your listeners who haven't been to Utah, it's one of the most beautiful parts of the country. We have several uh, national parks here. We have a, we have a, a tremendous amount of wilderness. Um, we can very 
we can we can we have enough space that during the winter season we go to a different part of the wilderness. We hike miles and miles to one area, and then during the summer months we we go at a higher level elevation so it cools down. So both of our sites are incredibly picturesque, and yeah, you're drawn to those areas that people use for adventure activities, outdoor activities, mountain biking, climbing, hiking, and you need that much space to be a nomadic model, which means they never come in. They're always just hiking from place to place their entire stay, which is about two months at a time. Two months is an average length of stay. Oh, really? So uh, two months in the wilderness? Two months in the wilderness, yeah. No, no. Oh, wonderful. They never get back. They never get back in, in indoors. No indoor plumbing, no inside. The young adults, actually, we, we've built an oasis out in the middle of the wilderness. They have a couple of yurts that they go to every couple of weeks um, where they get some extra okay. training as young adults. They have outside speakers and things like that. So other than that, they're out there the entire time. Wonderful. Well, we're going to take a short break here. Um, thank you. That sounds wonderfully robust. And when we get back, baby, we can talk a little bit more about how your program and your book come together. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Every day, you hear so much about different aspects of the health and wellness field. One day, you hear one thing, and the next day, you hear something that contradicts what you heard the day before. How do you know what's right? Try tuning in to The Cutting Edge of Health and Wellness today with Dr. Neil Nathan. Our goal is to educate and explore this field with guest experts in order to help you take control of your health and well-being. Listen Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. What causes us to be sick? We're not talking about the actual illness or the scientific cause of illnesses. We're talking about your body and health. Listen for the healing whisper of Return to Peace. Each week, host Dr. Marianne Chase shows you how to listen to your heart to identify poor health, stress, and disease. You'll learn how to heal energetically and spiritually, as well as physically. It's time to depend less on the drugs and more on the heart. The Healing Whisper airs live every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Well, thank you all for coming back. I'm here with Dr. Brad Reedy, 
um, who has some fascinating information about his wilderness programs and evoke therapy. Um, and I'd like to continue to follow um, about how we are transforming lives, how you folks are transforming lives out in the wilderness. Um, and uh, is there, and also, which is particularly intriguing for me, how you are engaging the families and how that evolved. You had mentioned that the um, programs evolved. I imagine the family component did as well. Yeah, that's that's fascinating, actually. So I'm a marriage and family therapist. That's my training. That's my degrees in marriage and family therapy. When I got out of school and I went into work for wilderness therapy eventually, they told me, don't work with the families. I was working for somebody else. They said, don't work with the families. You've got a half an hour update uh, once a week, and then when the child is done, they either go on to a therapeutic school program for a couple of years, or maybe they come home, but you don't have much to do with that. And it flew in the face of everything that I believed, that I just spent you know, four graduate school years learning about. And so that was frustrating. When we started our own, we began to make the change. We began to have families out in the field, and they love it. The parents love being out there in the wilderness with their kids. It's challenging, but they love it. And then you're right. It was an evolution. We continue to add more and more components. A a big point for me was when I sent my own son to our program. And that gave me a perspective where we were already doing a a lot of phone calls, a a lot of uh, parent meetings, a lot of... um, we had, the, we had the, the parent coordinator, but I just realized parent-to-parent can make a big difference, and so we added the mentoring piece, so when families leave, if they want to volunteer, then they volunteer to, to coach people and, and kind of go through that hand-holding early on in the program. I saw how valuable that was as a parent myself, and then we just added more and more components, and it's really just kind of evolved into this, this really large, robust program, and we're, we're, we're always changing. That's one thing that we believe is that what, what makes a good treatment program good is their willingness to ask themselves difficult questions and to evolve and to change and to find this, this next generation. So the, the web where I do the broadcast, the live broadcast and, and families call in, that's a lifetime feature that they get. And I have families from seven, eight, nine years ago who still check in on those webinars with me. And I, I, can, I can reach all of our families, current and former, in one hour, and then we can, we, can re, we can save that in the library, and they can watch it later. So, and then this latest piece where we added the, the family intensive and the personal intensive, that was just from an awareness that all these things that I'm describing so far are kind of systematized, right? It, it's programming, and this is really individualized intense therapy for that parent or that young adult who wants to go deeper, look at their family of origin, look at their trauma, do some healing, practice some mindfulness. So I guess it's just from personal experience, from professional observation, and, and willing to ask. A lot of this has come from parents. You know, some of these ideas came from parents. They asked us to have more parent support groups around the country, so we found a way to make that happen, for example. So we listen to what they say, and when we hear a theme that resonates with us that we think will be helpful, then we, we try it. And we tried a few things that haven't worked before, too. So those kind of go by the wayside when, when you try something and it doesn't work. We, we just we're willing to ask the question, for sure. Wonderful. You know, um, that's an interesting parallel um, to the um, sort of the message that I received for myself anyway in reading um, your book, um, which for the folks listening is called The Journey of the Heroic Parent. Um, And you seem to reflect a lot on the need for internal growth 
um, on the part of parents as we try to parent our children, but the need for us to look at ourselves, and it sounds like you've paralleled that within your own programs by saying we look at ourselves and we look at what works and we look at what doesn't, and we try to stay open to both sides of the um, ledger, so to speak. Could you speak a little bit more to that? Yeah, somebody just asked me last week uh, that had been through our program, does every program emphasize the family work as much as, as we do? And, and, and I think a lot of people do great family work, but what we, what we really believe, we believe it starts with us, the partners at the program, those, who, those of us who own the program. We have to be doing our own work. We support our key, our key professionals in our company to go to therapeutic workshops of their own. Not, not, not to be taught but actually to do their own work. And we partners have all committed to do that ourselves. So we do our own work. I, I jokingly, kind of jokingly, tell my clients often, if you meet a therapist who doesn't know that they're crazy and doesn't know that they need to do work, walk away as quickly as you can. Because I, I think the difference between being the expert and, and, and telling everybody the way it is and, and really, like you said, engaging in a parallel process, I think that's the most inviting uh, context for people to, to, to do their work. And my therapist, who I've had for the past uh, 17 years, I know she's done her work, and I know she continues to do her work, and she's in her 70s, and, and she, she will until she's done breathing. It's just, it's just part of our culture, part of what we believe here, and we've seen that with our clients. We've seen outcomes improve, and we do a lot of research in our company. We've seen outcomes improve the more we involve the family in the process. And so it's not about shame or guilt or blame. We just know that if I do my work, if my therapists do their work, if my staff are willing to do their work, if the company has that culture, if we can model that for, for our clients, we can, we can invite them in a very safe way to do their own work. And that's what we're hoping for, for everybody, uh, both from the, from, the stu- from the 13-year-old student uh, all the way up to the parent of, of five who only, only has one child who needed treatment, we believe that there's value in everybody doing their own work in this process, and it's part of our own journey, too. Right. I can't imagine that, um, as you mentioned, a parent that has multiple children, this must affect their parenting of their other children in a positive way. Right. Do and, they you know, we actually do sibling Oh, sorry, yeah. We, we actually provide sibling webinars, too, which I didn't mention, where we invite siblings oh, to come wonderful. on any age and, and ask me questions, and, and, I, and I address them frequently, ask questions, and I teach, and it's so sweet. I'll have a six-year-old or an eight-year-old on there saying things like, is my brother cold right now? And what does he eat? All the way to a 25-year-old sibling who's saying, how can I be helpful in this process? So I wanted to mention that because it's, it's a whole family thing. But um, yeah, it I mean, that's what I, 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 I know from my own work is that I have, a, I have four children, ages 8 to 22 right now, and two in between, and I have a wife. And, and the principles that, that I learned that help me to do what I do with them, if I do it well, it helps me with my wife, with my coworkers. You know, there's this idea that says the proper way of treating a, treating a child is the proper way of treating another human being. And so the challenges in parenting aren't about kids. The challenges in parenting are about us and our limitations and our baggage and what we bring. Again, without the shame, without the blame, without the guilt, if we can look at that stuff, if we can be aware of that stuff, I say to my adult children all the time, even my younger children, it's important for you to figure out how your father and mother are crazy. That's an important part of healing and growing up, and I invite you to do that through my older children to their own personal workshop where they could, like I say, figure out how we 
beautifully screwed them up in our own beautiful way. And so I want them to have that gift. I want everybody in in the family, my family, and the family that I work with, my extended family, because it's all the same principles. The same principles apply to all of our relationships in many ways. So, which is such a wonderfully welcoming um, position to take um, and and very engaging um, in the process of um, providing the services that you provide within that and also in the development of your book. Um, how did you balance some of the conflicting information that you might be receiving from, as you say, quote-unquote, the experts and your own personal experiences and the observations you've had in watching the folks participating in your program transform? You know, that's a great question. And I think sometimes I handle it very poorly. <laughs> sometimes I didn't manage it very well. Um, but I, but I, I guess the most honest thing I could say is I've made enough mistakes. I've struggled enough. I came at it as an expert when I was younger in my professional career with my families, and there was implied in my message this idea that if you do it this way, if you do it the right way, everything will go well. And then I had clients that died. They went on later in their life to overdose or kill themselves. That happened to me over this 20-year career. And so when you start answering questions with this confidence that if you tell somebody there's a, there's a magic formula and that if they do it, everything will go well, um, and then you have those experiences, you, you either have to bury your head in the sand and, and, and make it all about client sickness or realize I don't have all the answers all the time. So from my own mistakes, the compassion that I need and I require, the, the, invite, the invitation that I need from my therapist, and also from being in this wonderfully intimate and painful place with families where I've worked with them and realized it's not easy. There's no magic bullet. Um, you can do everything right and other people still get to make their choices. And so for me, it's the trial and error and the pain and the loss and the hurt that really humbled me, I guess you could say, to this point where I realized Mm -hmm. I don't need experts in my life in that way and I don't need to be an expert. Now, I am an expert, but I'm not an expert on your truth. I'm an expert on creating a process for you to find your truth. That's the therapist's expertise. It's not, I know better than you, do what I do do what I say, let me give you advice. It's let me engage you in a process where you can get past the stuff that gets in the way and find out what your truth is because there's a thousand, like I say in the book, there's a thousand right ways to raise a child and, and, and there's a thousand valid ways to raise a child, not one right way and not my way. So if I can help you to find that, then I'm doing therapy with you. I'm not doing psychology on you. I'm doing therapy with you and that's a different thing. Absolutely. So there's a, um, one of the... Um, uh, bullet points that you mention in the book, and you say removing the burden of your own ego from your child is one of the greatest gifts you can give as a parent. And it, it sounds like that's a lot of the process that you've just described of yeah. getting rid of your own perfection, getting rid yeah. as a parent your own need to know everything to impart that to your child to be the expert in life when right. few of us likely are. Would that I, I be say, fair to say? Yeah. I say if children need parents that are perfect or near perfect, they're all doomed. What they need is they need you to make your life a project, and that's a more vulnerable and difficult process for most parents because they think they need to know everything, right? They come with that baggage. But if my child's 
outcome. If my child's success or failures is evidence of my goodness and badness, if I give that to them, that's that piece about ego. If I give them that yeah. and they're just a reflection of me, number one, I turn them into an object, a thing, really, that is just a measure of my goodness or badness as a, as a man, as a parent. Um, but I, I burden them, right? I burden them with something yeah. where they then have to do something to make me look good, and that's not the job. Exactly. So we'll come back to just that concept when we return. We're going to take a brief break right now. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Can grief be good for you? Absolutely. It gets your attention, helping you evaluate your choices and relationships. Your losses define who you are. Tune in each week for Good Grief with host Cheryl Jones. Our show features those who have made incredible transformations by grieving their losses. You'll learn how to find your courage and strength. You'll discover the important things in your life and how to let go of things that are less important. Good Grief airs live Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. We are bombarded with information daily about happy life strategies, beauty products, and business success ideas. Are they truly going to make a change or just take the change out of your pocket? Tune in to Shelly's Show and Tell with host Shelly Hancock. Shelly will explore and recommend proven business ideas as well as show you how to use the law of attraction to create health, happiness, and a prosperous business. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health and Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. This is Eileen Fiore sitting in for Mary Woods um, for one hour at a time. And I have Dr. Brad Reedy on the line who um, has been intriguing us here with descriptions of transformations for the use of um, evoke therapy and wilderness programs in addition to um, also referencing his book, The Journey of the Heroic Parent, Your Child's Struggle and the Road Home. And and I wonder, Brad, if we could start by, um, maybe you could talk a little about that, um, the title and, and how you came to the development of that. Right, right. You know, my publisher, Judith Regan, is, was, was the one who actually 
came up with the title. And what she recognized in my book was I drew a lot from on the philosopher's uh, Joseph Campbell's work, and he was one who wrote a, a book. His 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 hallmark book was Hero with a Thousand Faces. It's basically what Star Wars was based on, and it's this idea that if you look at all great stories, all great myths, um, what you see is this this core pattern. Um, that this the the character goes into this place, goes somewhere to on on this mission to find something. In the case of our treatment, it's the parent sending their child to us to save their life, and then the parent is willing to to walk into Al-Anon meetings, right? To go into their own therapy, to go into places, their their virtual wilderness, if you will. The wilderness is always in Joseph Campbell's uh, paradigm. He always talks about how wilderness is this place that we go that is scary, that is that is unpaved, that we. We go in there and we, we face ourselves, we face our greatest fears. So the heroic journey is the journey inward. And, and what the hero comes out with on the other side of that is he or she comes out with a deeper sense of themselves. They think they're going after the Holy Grail, right? That's what King Arthur's Knights thought it was about. But what they came back with was stories. And so then we come back and we tell our stories to other people. We tell them to people in our Al-Anon or our Codependence Anonymous or an Alcoholics Anonymous means we tell them, in sessions, we tell them by mentoring. And so the heroic journey is the journey inward. It's the, it's the scariest thing for parents to do because they want to think about it is pretty simple at first and how do you fix the kid and just give me some tools. And like I talk about in the book, parenting education does not change children. It changes parents. And that change can have a mm-hmm. profound impact on the family. So the, the, the shortest phrase that I use to describe this is the heroic journey is always inward. And that's the idea that, that I invite parents to go into because I think we want to keep it outside of us, right? We want to keep all the battles, all the difficulty, all the pain outside of us. And when we recognize that it's inside of us, we can do something about it. Yes, which um, also brings up a, um, a thought for me anyway, is this could be breaking generations of parenting style because we do tend to repeat some of the things that, um, we received in our own childhood and adolescence. Um, can you speak a little to that? Because this really must be um, a challenge for families from a, a whole host of levels. Yeah, you, you know, I think I think about it this way. This is what what you said brings up for me. For my mother, her parents thought Elvis Presley was the devil. Right, and then the next generation it was the Rolling Stones and the Beatles, and then there was rock and roll and rap music and so. I use that as an example because I, I keep wondering to myself, when are we going to finally be a generation of parents that looks at our children and doesn't pathologize them, doesn't say, "Look how much worse they are than us." We are repeating the same thing over again. The 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 the, the context, or excuse me, the, the details are changing a little bit, but the overall themes are not the same. Rap music was a rebellion against authority. Rock and roll, punk rock, the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, Elvis, they were all, it's the same thing over and over and over again. And so um, one of the ideas is that we can, we can start, like you said, we can start to think about it differently. That's what this book does. It's not Dr. Spock's approach or Dr. Reedy's approach. It's teaching parents how to think about parenting and think about the, what the questions. And so when somebody asks me a question, and I illustrate this in every chapter of the book, what do I do here? I say, well, that's not the question. The question is not what do you do. You get to decide that. Let's figure out who you are. Let's figure out who your child is. And let's figure out your relationship to them and their problems. When we figure that out in dialogue, in discussion, when you learn to think that way, you'll know what to do. The answer will be simple. 
If you, and if you think the right way, you can't make a wrong decision. And if you think the wrong way, you can't make a right decision. And so it really does ask people to go a few layers deeper so that for the first time, I hope, mm-hmm. in people's lives, they can have a different kind of conversation instead of just recycling the same old patterns and changing the drapery and the scenery behind the play, but essentially it's the same story over and over again. Wow. So the immediate thought that comes to me is how culturally embedded um, guilt and shame are in much of our parenting and also reflected within our overall culture. So can you speak a little to that, um, the role of shame and guilt within this process? I think many people in therapy and psychology today understand the, the, the negative effects of shame. Shame causes us to hide. Shame is, a, shame is a sense that we are bad. But I think guilt is just another form of that, a, a more mild form. Some people even suggest, and I refute this in the book, using just discussion and logic and examples from every one of our lives. There's a, there's a story where I tell Brene Brown, that famous talk that she has on vulnerability, where she asks the audience, if she's teaching this. She says guilt is, is, is your conscience, right or wrong. It's associated with mental health, she says. And then she says, she says, how many of you, if you did something and you felt guilty, you would apologize? And the entire, they expanded the audience and the entire audience raised their hand. And I'm thinking, none of these people have been married because my first instinct when I feel guilty always isn't to do the right thing. When I ask parents, often when they say to me, Brad, I knew the right thing to do and I didn't do it. And I say, why not? They almost always say, I, was, I felt guilty. So guilt is not conscience. It's not right and wrong. It is a feeling of maybe not that we're bad, but that we're doing something bad. Guilt is how we were parented. We were told that when our parents were upset, we did something wrong. And that's insane Mm -hmm. because you can do something right and somebody can be upset and it's not about you. So it's really debunking the value of, of what people might call healthy shame or guilt, which I've never seen. Interesting. And so the process of this would be fostering some form of conflict between the two generations, if you will, um, but with a much different outcome, I would imagine. Yeah, I think it does bridge the generations. I think when parents start to do their own work and they show up making their life a project, not their child's life a project, the child feels safe. You know, if you walk into anybody's life and you try to pull down the, the barriers, right, the walls that they've built to feel safe because of their wounds and their history, what's going to be their impulse? Their impulse is going to be to build them back up. And so what we have to do to encourage change, to facilitate change, is tear down our own walls, one painful brick at a time. When we do that, the people sitting across for us will feel safe. We won't be a threat to them. It'll be very disarming, and they'll pull it down. And so that's what I invite. I say to my families all the time, make the assumption nobody else in the family is going to change. Just focus on what you can do, and, you'll, and watch how powerfully that, that will affect other people in the family. So we each learn to take our brick down, our walls down. We invite through that process a, a kind of safety, a kind of containment, they call it, an, anal- an analysis, and people around mm-hmm. us feel safe. And it, it, it makes remarkable changes in families. I can't. I can imagine that it does. And, of course, it um, does uh, bring to mind the... Uh, serenity prayer, which I know you reference in your book as well, in terms of um, being able to manage or control the things that I can and being able to figure out the difference within that. And I imagine that must apply in a whole host of places within the process 
of growth in your programs? It's a it's a constant and overarching theme of our program. The the, the principles of the Serenity Prayer. We talk. I, I never do a parent lecture, a parent class, a parent workshop where that doesn't come up and become a part of a theme because that really is at the crux of, of human beings. What you know, I've seen parents who are anxious and depressed. And blaming their children for it, right? You're smoking pot or you're cutting on yourself or doing whatever. And so I'm unhappy. You know that old adage of you're only as happy as your least happy child? That's insane. That's something we (laughs) thought was a good idea sometime. But my serenity is my responsibility, right? If I focus on what I can change, I'm going to feel less anxious and less depressed. So I take back my serenity. I make it my responsibility. And again, the most important thing of all this, when people do this, you know this, you've seen this in your life, when people do this, they are incredibly powerful influences in other people's lives. When people try to control, the, the, the beginning of the behavioral chapter is a quote from one of my therapists, Paul Goddard, who says, to the extent you try to control your children, you lose your influence over them. And so it yeah. really is a theme that gets weaved in all the way through all of the parenting lessons that I've observed over the last 20 years, people struggling with. Um, it, one of the points in the book um, is a, a brief exchange where ultimately the parent just puts forth, um, and in the book the, the term is idiot, I'm an idiot, uh, now where do we go? Um, so that's an interesting way of resolving impasses. Right. I say that in my family all the time. If you, if you tell your kids you're an idiot, that you don't get, you, no one argues with you anymore. So... That's the ego thing, right? That, that's the way the enlightened people, the enlightened people that have walked on the planet, the Gandhis of the world, they weren't trying to be great. They were just, they were humble. They would say, I'm an idiot. And when you're an idiot, that means you're teachable. I mean, and I don't mean it in a, in a pejorative sense. I mean, I'm human. I'm imperfect. I make mistakes every day. I mean, I, I dedicate my life to parenting education. And I make mistakes every single day in parenting. And if I don't know that or can't see that, that doesn't make me enlightened or better. That makes me ignorant and afraid. And so the idiot parent idea is if parents can all admit that they're idiots, let's just get past that, okay? Let's stop trying to be good, quote unquote, which is the barrier to growth and to enlightenment and to learning. Let's just realize we're human. And when we can realize that, then there's something to learn. Then there's a project to work on. Then we can, we can, we can grow. But when we have to be good, we, we, we won't see the things about ourselves that threaten that image of ourselves, right? We'll be in denial of those. We'll push those away. We'll get defensive about those. So being an idiot parent is the most enlightened place you can be. Wonderful. It's a lovely recovery message. We're going to take a brief break here, um, and we'll be back for our final segment with Dr. Reedy. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. 
Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Do you know about Reiki? This method of healing can complement Western medicine as well as other alternative practices. Besides healing, it can have the additional effect of making you feel more positive about yourself and the world around you. By tuning into For the Love of Reiki with host Paula Vale, you'll find how Reiki can improve your health, bring balance into your life, and fill you with joy. For the Love of Reiki is broadcast live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Helping you make informed decisions for your life. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Thank you for um, returning to all of our listeners, and um, we're continuing our conversation today. I'm Eileen Fiore, um, sitting in for Mary Woods, and I have Dr. Brad Reedy on the line, who has written um, uh, The Journey of the Heroic Parent, which we were just talking about, but I'm wondering if we might shift gears a little bit, because um, in the constant evolution um of your programs, you um, have become very willing to take on some challenging tasks, one of which I understand is uh, a play. And I wonder if you could share with our listeners how that evolved and what some of your challenges might have been in the development of that. Yeah, somebody came to us who who had exposure with wilderness therapy and they found it fascinating because it really is both so simple and beautiful and also fascinating. And she wanted to to do some socially conscious art around it. So she's a producer, a play. So she collaborated with us to create this play. We contacted several of our families and asked them if they wanted to be involved. So it's the story of six young people and their families. And their journey through wilderness therapy, from substance abuse to depression to cutting to transgender issues and the issues that come along with being a transgender young person. And so it's their real stories. It's taken from their real stories and interviews. On the screen above are the real parents talking about their story. And on stage, there are six actors that are depicting these these, uh, six young people. There's original music, and it's really an opportunity, a movement for us to talk about wilderness therapy, to talk about healing, but really it's about mental health stigma. Because everybody who does this knows this, that once you get into it, this whole world opens up to you. And in recovery and in wilderness therapy, where all of a sudden, it's everywhere, right? And there are people next door that had some of the same struggles that you didn't know about because these, these walls that we build between each other. So this is a way to get a message out there. It's going to open in New York in October. The gala is October 26th in New York. And then it's going to tour the country next year, all of the country major cities. I'll be going with it on the road. I'm one of the associate producers, and I'll be going on the road 
to talk afterwards, to talk on panels about mental health stigma. We're trying to get young people in colleges to open up, to, to get help. And we know there's enough need in the country right now for people to get and ask for help. And so we want to get past the barriers of judgment and hate and, and get, get those out of the way so that people can go out there and ask for help. It's a wonderful, beautiful story, touching story. And there's a mother who's the, the every mother, the narrator through there, and she's going through the process of sending her child away and then learning and growing with a child and then eventually visiting her child out in the wilderness and just that whole journey that she goes through. So it's a really warm, powerful, socially conscious piece. It's produced by On Guard Arts. So if you go to onguardarts.org, this is a nonprofit company that's producing it. Um, they, you can also go to Facebook and go to Wilderness, the, the Wilderness uh, Documentary Theater Project. Search that, and you can find information about that there and, and, and look at the stories and also look at the trailer, and you can follow it around the country. It's fantastic, wonderful to be involved with it. Now, it is that it is fascinating and um, certainly addressing stigma. Could not be more timely um, within... Um, the social and political climate. Um, I'm wondering, were how did you select the actors? Were they drawn to this sort of as a calling? Um, how did you select the folks that would actually be on the stage? Well, uh, Annie Hamburger, who's the who's the producer and, and the owner of On Guard Art, she held open auditions. She she was connected with Pace University in our, in our early development, and so she found some actors who were passionate about that. Some of the early actors actually had siblings that were in our program before, so some of the early workshops had people that were really just by coincidence, they were drawn to it, like you suggested and said. Eventually, we opened it back up. Um, a lot of people have a very personal connection. The, the person playing a transgender client is transgender. Right? There's, there's other people in the play who have relationships with people who've gone through our program, who are, and they're also actors and actresses. What, what we know about this work, right? all of our work, your work I'm sure too, like I said, is, is once you come out, if you will, and start talking about your problems and start reaching out to people, people come out of the woodwork. And that's what's happened with this is that people absolutely were drawn to it, even asked at times when we were doing the final casting if they could you know, if they could be involved in, in that and, and take a shot at it. So it's, it's something that we advertise like we would a typical play, but we also, um, we also found people coming to us because of their connection to mental health and specifically to our programs. Well, it certainly is rare to find any family that has not been affected and challenged by um, the consequences of... Uh, even mental illness or substance abuse. And, uh, and certainly you've woven the two into a very provocative program um, out in the wilderness, but also within your publication and your play. Um, how has this been received in some of the more traditional arenas? Say, for example, within the 12-step programs, um, and, and throughout other organizations. Um, I'm hoping it's been well-received. I think people, people keep it at arm's length initially because it sounds strange, but what could be more natural than camping and therapy, <laughs> camping and talking around a fire, having a group session or a 12-step meeting or a 10-step meeting around a fire, right? So I think initially, I'll tell you this, when people get really exposed, so when they hear about it, they, they think it sounds like boot camp or it sounds strange to them. 
you get somebody out into the woods for a day, you get somebody who's a therapist at home or that makes referrals to programs, we, we, if we take them out and have them spend a few hours in the wilderness with one group, they're in love. Every time, every single time, they watch it and they think, of course, this is the way it should be. This is real life. The stuff back home, the virtual, that's not real life. This is real. This is on the ground. So initially, I think people have some triggers. I think some of the old boot camps in the 1980s and the shock TV kind of scared people, and that's not what this is. But once people get into it at all, if they can just listen to it, watch, watch the trailer for the play, for example, but get out there and spend one time or have one experience with clients, they realize, for example, the 12-step world, people come into your, to my program quoting the steps, and I say to them, I wrote this in a, in a, in a magazine re- recently in the Silver World, I say to them, I don't see it. Like, I hear the words of recovery, but I don't see it out here. And, and I can see it or not out here because... You can't hide out here. There's nothing to run behind, to run away. There's nowhere to go. And so it just it shows up in your life or it doesn't. It's, it's experiential therapy, right, which we know is powerful in treating trauma and we know is, more, is oftentimes a better test, if you will, a better indicator of how mentally healthy and how, how much our recovery that we're living is. Very, very interesting. And you mentioned after the program, what are the plans when people have completed? Because what you describe in your book and um, so what we're talking about, these are lifelong journeys. So how does that play out when people have completed the wilderness component and then move forward? We hope that they've begun their aftercare planning the first week. I mean, our, our, our parent portal has pop-up assignments. We ask them to go to six, the parents to go to six 12-step meetings while they're with us. We have 12-step meetings out in the field. We have, of course, therapy out in the field. So we ask them to get it started right away. We ask them to get a home therapist. Many of our clients and students go to step-down programs, sober livings, right, secondary care programs, therapeutic schools and programs. That's often the recommendation. Some will go okay. the more traditional route, okay. and then we just hope that they've made use of all their planning. Great. So I want to thank everyone, and you especially, Dr. Riddy, for joining us today for one hour at a time. It's been a fascinating discussion. I know I've thoroughly enjoyed it, and I hope all of our listeners have as well. Thank you very much for joining us for one hour at a time. Thank you. We appreciate you joining us today for One Hour at a Time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.